what is the right thing to do? Think about that, that question. What's the right thing to do? What, what does it look like to be righteous in this particular situation for this particular decision? That's, that's a question, a reality that we face all the time in all sorts of situations and all sorts of places. Uh, it might be a financial decision. What's the right thing to do? It might be a relationship. What's the right thing to do in regards to this relationship? Uh, maybe it's deciding when should I speak up, when it should be quiet. What's the right thing to do? What's the righteous thing? Um, you think about that kind of question, it's a question that D David faces uh, in our passage. It's not the first time he's faced this question. As we sort of particularly think about it through the lens of chapter 26, what we're seeing here is David facing a situation that's almost exactly the same as he faced back in chapter 24. Um, David is again on the run. Saul is again back to trying to hunt David down. Saul is the current king of Israel. God has promised that David's going to be the next king. Saul doesn't like that, and so he's been hunting David. And first it looked like he was going to stop, and now he's back to it. So David is on the run, and, and in our chapter, he faces another situation like he did in chapter 24. He happens to be able to find Saul defenseless, vulnerable, and he has an opportunity to kill Saul. And in that moment, he faces that question. What's the right thing to do? What's the righteous thing in this situation? That's a question that we'll be thinking about through the lens of this chapter, through this story, to consider what does it mean to be righteous? How do you answer that question? What's the right thing to do? What's the way to figure that out? On what basis do we decide what's the right thing to do? So let's get into our chapter. Chapter uh, 26 begins with the Ziphites again, uh, telling Saul, hey, we know where David is. And so Saul comes out in force with thousands of soldiers. This is clearly an obsession of Saul. That's a lot of troops for Saul to be hunting David down. And so he shows up with all his troops to find David, to finally get him and be able to kill him. This time, though, David is a step ahead of Saul. We're told early on in the chapter, David has spies out. And this time around, he knows where Saul is. Saul doesn't know where David is, but David knows where Saul is. So his spies tell David, and David decides, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay Saul a visit. And he asks those around him, who wants to go with me? His nephew, Abishah, says, yes, I'll go with you. So we look down at verse 7 of chapter 26. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. So Saul is with 3,000 of his troops. They're at camp. They're sleeping. And Saul and his nephew are able to sneak all the way to the center of the camp to where Saul, David and his, his nephew are able to sneak all the way to where Saul is. And we're told in verse 12 why this happened, how this was able to happen. I mean, it seems impossible. All these troops, they're totally asleep and they're able to make their way all the way to where Saul is. Verse 12 tells us how this was able to happen. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So God had allowed this to happen, for David to make his way with his nephew into the camp with anyone seeing it. And, you know, just, just notice something here. Just sort of a, a quick thing to sort of mention. It's, it's interesting. Um, here is Saul. He's a guy obsessed with power. I'm going to hold on to power no matter what. I need a dynasty no, no matter what. I'm showing up, rolling in deep with 3,000 troops <laughs> to show how much power I have. And here he is, as defenseless as a newborn baby. <laughs> right? With all the power and all the strength that he has, he's nothing compared to what God wants to have happen. And so it's just worth mentioning here. Um, you know, it, it, there's one proof, there's many proofs, but there's one proof that human beings aren't gods. 
that we aren't in control of our lives, that we are actually very vulnerable and dependent. Well, here's one of them, the fact that we are creatures who have to sleep. <laughs> Just think about the reality of having to sleep. That every, every day we have to sleep for a couple hours. You have to be unconscious for a couple hours in one place, totally defenseless. Um, it's a reminder here. I mean, here's, here's God making Saul and all these troops asleep and a reminder for all of us to be a human is to be vulnerable. It's to be dependent. It's to be vulnerable dependent before the one whom is able to cause all the things that he wants to have happen. There's only one God. It's the Lord God. And Saul is, just in this, right in the very beginning, we're seeing, I think, God showing something about just who he is in comparison to Saul. So anyway, getting back to our story, Abishai, he's thinking like David's men back in chapter 24. We made our way all the way here. Saul is right in front of us, fast asleep. Everyone else is asleep. This is our moment. Verse 8 of chapter 26. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. He's like, this is God's plan, clearly, <laughs> right? <laughs> As one person would put it, right? This is God's plan. Like we, you, we know Saul's not good at killing people with a spear, but I'm pretty good. I will not miss, <laughs> right? Let me take care of this right now. But David won't allow it. He won't let Saul be killed in cold blood like this. Verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. Israel's king is appointed by God. The way Saul became king was God selected Saul. Had a process through Samuel, his prophet, to select Saul and appoint him as king. So who becomes king of Israel is something God controls, something God directs, something God guides. So that means for David, who and how and when someone becomes king, that's not something for, for David to determine. That's something for God to determine. That's what's driving what, what David says here. That's why he's saying, look, I'll let God decide. I'll let the Lord decide when Saul is done, when his day is gone. So that's why here David is not going to kill Saul. Notice all the, how many often he says the Lord. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down. So the Lord forbid that I do anything against the Lord's anointed. He's saying, this is the Lord's situation. God has set Saul up, and he said he's going to set me up. I'm going to follow in that. I'm not going to force that. So he decides he's not going to kill Saul. I mean, in many ways, it's him remembering the promise of God that Abigail reminded him of back in chapter 25 of verse 30. Um, Abigail in the previous story, and it looks like this is something everyone knew. David has been promised to be king. So the question is, what will David do in response to this promise that everyone knew about? Here's what David's going to do. I'm going to trust the Lord is going to guide this. The Lord will determine this. So uh, David, though, while he's not going to kill Saul, he does want to make a point here that what Saul has been doing is not good. And so he decides to do something similar to what he did back in chapter 24. Remember back in chapter 24, that case Saul was relieving himself and David cut a piece of his robe He's going to do something similar here. He's going to take something of, of Saul's. And it's a bit of a flex here. He's, he's saying something by what he takes. He takes Saul's spear. The spear was a symbol of royal authority, right? This is a spear that Saul's been using to try to kill David. He's going to take that. He's, he's, he's saying something. He's going to say something. He's not just going to go without any, saying anything. He wants to say something about what Saul's been doing. So David and Abishai sneak out of the camp. And as we said, something that God had allowed to happen, set up to happen so that they could do this. Let's pick up in verse 13 of chapter 26. 
So David is now far out of the camp, and it says, And David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Well, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. It was me. <laughs> this, king that you, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. Look, I've got it. So what's David saying to Abner? He's like, look, you're one of the greatest men of Israel and that, like, you let your king down. Like that should be death penalty, right? That's pretty bad, right? You messed up. I want you to know what happened here. At this point, I guess Saul wakes up and it says in verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it's the lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out of this day, driven me out this day, that I shall have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So David's appealing to Saul. He's like, look, what have I done to deserve you acting like this to me? Like, if it's God behind this, then look, I will confess my sin. I'll I'll make an offering, right, to to deal with what I've done. But if it's men, just just regular people who've stirred you up against me, well, then... A curse be upon them, because what they're doing is going to lead to me having to leave my land, my people, the land of Israel. It's going to be another land where I'm going to be forced to serve other gods. That's not what I want to have happen. Of course, what's being unsaid in all this is the fact that it's really Saul, right, who's responsible for this. But you see what David is saying. He's trying to say, look, this whole situation is bad. So you should be asking who's responsible for this, because this isn't right, what's being done to me. And Saul... Just like at the end of chapter 24, he again admits that he's wrong. It's just interesting to think about. Like Saul had something in him that realized this is wrong, and when he was confronted with it, he would admit it, but it doesn't stick, right? So once again, he's willing to admit, but it looks like once, well, I'll just tell you, this confession is superficial, unfortunately. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Um, here's David's response. And here's really the, the key part of, of what we're looking at this morning, what I really want to get us to, in terms of how David's thinking through this, what motivates and determines how David decides what's right to do when it comes to how he interacts with Saul. Verse 22, David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand, my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let's go back to, to verse 23 there, and we read that again. Here's what David says. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David is saying, look, here's how God is like. 
God affirms those who act righteously and faithfully. So you do what's right, you're faithful. Here's what God does, he rewards you. But notice, the right and faithful thing for David to do, what's the right and faithful thing for David to do? It's to trust that God is going to be righteous and faithful. That's the righteousness and faithfulness of David. It's determined on God, isn't it? It's based on God's promise, the promise that I'm going to keep Saul accountable. So we respond before he does. I'm going to appoint you as king. What David is not saying is like, look, I'm a good person. Look at the righteous things I do. Look how faithful I am. I'm a good person, and eventually God is going to show up and notice, look at you, David. You're a good person. He's going to reward me for it. That's not what, what, what actually David is saying. If you look at the full scope of, of this book and what's been motivating David and all his interactions with Saul is this bigger picture. David is saying, I need to do the right thing. I want to be righteous. But the right thing to do, the faithful thing to do, will be based on trusting that God keeps his promises. And that guides then how I'm acting righteously and faithfully. And that's what God will reward. He's figuring out what to do in this particular situation. His righteousness, him being righteous and faithful based on God. God is righteous. And that's why he says, like, God will um, deliver me out of tribulation. I'll be precious in the sight of the Lord. My righteousness and faithfulness is not determined by what I think is best. It's determined by what I understand God has said to me, what he's promised to me. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? What does it mean to be righteous to do the right thing? Well, it comes down to this question, isn't it? To what degree is our righteousness based on us or based on God? To have a righteousness depend not on you but on God and his righteousness. And what, why is this important? Why do we need this? Well, to understand this, let me jump to the New Testament and see how the Apostle Paul sort of thinks through this similar kind of question. So this is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. Feel free to turn there if you want to. But Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. Paul... He begins in this chapter talking about like how basically a good person he is, how righteous he is. And so in these verses he says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I kept the law. I was blameless. Paul was a good person <laughs> in that culture. He went after the, the people that the, people, the culture didn't like. He stood up for God's law. And, and so if you're saying I'm righteous and faithful, God will reward me. If there's anyone who should be able to say, I will get a reward from God, it is Paul. I've crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. I am a good person. I'm religious. I go to church and I volunteer and I give money and I go after the people who are bad, right? And I stand with the people who are good. I am a good person. I'm a righteous person. And how many of us think the same way? I do right things. I'm generally a good person. But notice, really, I do good and right things in comparison to other people. That's how that works. You look at Twitter, everyone talking about what's the right or good thing to do. It's funny to me. It's always in comparison to the people who are bad. Right? Look how bad they are, not like me. Right? I'm a righteous and good person. That's really what Paul is talking about here. I'm a righteous and good person. I'm blameless compared to everyone else around me. And that's what David could say here. When you think about what's the right thing for David to do in this situation, it's not wrong for us to think, Look what Saul has been doing. He's been coming after me. He's been trying to kill me. He's been trying to murder me. It is right for me to kill this dude right now. And no one would be against him for doing that, given how he's been treated, how he's been, how, all, the, all the things that, that Saul has done. Here's a good opportunity. It's not unfair for us to think, it's not wrong for us to think, 
one right thing that David could do is to kill Saul in this moment. He's certainly more righteous than the other people around us. And we think the same way. I'm more righteous, I'm more good compared to these people. They're way more extreme or they're way passive or they're just, they're, they, they don't think about right things. They're not righteous the way I am. So what's the right thing to do? Well, here's the right thing to do. It is definitely better than what these other people are doing. But here's what Paul then says. He thinks that, he's used to think that way. He doesn't anymore. And he says it's because of this, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What Paul realizes is that my righteousness falls short, way short of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is particularly in Jesus Christ. See, what the Bible talks about is our righteousness is like, a, it's just a great sort of image here. Our righteousness is like a whitewashed tomb. It's a great image, right? Think of a tomb, like a, a gravesite, that is just beautiful on the outside, right? Whitewashed, right? Bright, gleaming white clean, right? And the inside, it's dead, right? It's, it's, it's ugly, right? There's corpses in there. What the Bible says is that what we tend to do, when you think of that question, what's the right thing to do? What does it look like for me to be a right person, a righteous person? We think of it more on the outside. Look at the things I do. Notice the things I do in comparison to these other dudes, these other people, my family, other people. I'm way better. And the Bible says you got to look underneath that, what's inside you, right? This is the way you look at You don't just look at the outside of a tomb. You know what's inside of it. You look at the inside of us. Well, the right things we say we do are often driven by selfishness. It's driven by ambition. It's driven by pride. Just even the idea of, like, I'm better than these other people. What is that? Right there, it's saying, I'm righteous. I do right things in comparison to these other people. It's pride. It's selfishness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, that's why our righteousness, when we determine it based on our terms, what we think is best in a given situation, it's like filthy rags. And think about that image. We have this rag. Imagine you have this rag and you're trying to clean something, but it's filthy. So the more you move it around, it just, it's, it's getting more dirty. We tend to think of what's right and good. We tend to think of ourselves as being right and good based on something that is fundamentally dirty already. It's because of what's inside of us, if we're honest, right? Again, this is, this is hard to do. It's hard to do. What you do on the outside can look bright and shiny and clean, and people might bring great attention to it. But only you knew what's inside of your heart. And the Bible is always sort of showing us what's inside of our hearts. It's always showing us what's inside our hearts. So we can go around bragging about, look what I'm doing for my people. Look what I'm doing for my family. Look, what I'm, look at the things I'm responsible for. Look at the things I'm acting and doing. Yet inside of our hearts is this pit of, of self-righteousness and anger and selfishness and lust and pride and all these different things that drives what we do and how we act. It's lacking, isn't it? That's why Paul says, well, my righteousness, me determining what the right thing to do, it's nothing. It's rubbish compared to God and his righteousness. And what God has done is said, look, I am righteous and I've made my righteousness available to you. I've put it on full display in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul goes on to say. Verse 9, now I'm found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, what I was able to accomplish on my own. I came to these situations, look at me, I'm righteous based on my own decisions. Paul says, I found a righteousness not of my own, it's better. I found that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What God is trying to do is say, look, here's your righteousness and it's all jacked up, <laughs> right? It's messed up. 
I have a righteousness that is pure and, 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 and will stand and last forever. It's the righteousness of God in Jesus. That Jesus comes and lives a righteous life. And there's this great theological term called imputation. In other words, the sense that Jesus is righteous and good and inserts it, imputes it, puts it into your life. He doesn't hold it back from us. Jesus came specifically to live the righteous life we could not live so that he could give us his righteousness. So that when we think of what does it look like for me to be righteous? What does it look like for me to do the right thing? I think about it. I know it based not on me, but based on God in Jesus Christ. And that's what lasts. That's what matters. That elevates us into something better because that righteousness deals with our selfishness and our ambition and our ego and our pride and all these different things that churn inside of us that taint all the things that we do and all the decisions that we make and all the directions that we go. God says, let me clean that out. I'm sending you Jesus. Once you trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus, you have a righteousness, not of your own, but of God and that last, that matters. When you believe in that righteousness, when you trust in that righteousness, guess what that does? That opens you up. So that when you think about what's the right thing for me to do, what does it look like for me to be righteous in a situation, you can think about it and enter it in a way more radical level. <laughs> in a like supernatural level. There's a base of righteousness that we'll do and settle for. And God is showing, like, it's not even that great, right, what you think it is. What God is trying to elevate us into is to his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, which is pure, without sin, and that's way more radical. And when we are doing right based on God, based on our faith in Jesus, well, again, that is of heavenly stuff. So what does that look like? David being righteous on his terms will look like him killing Saul and being king. That's the right thing to do, given what Saul has done. But behind that would have been mixed in selfish ambition, impatience, uh, a desire for greed, right? I need to be king right now. But trusting first in God and his righteousness, trusting that God is going to do the right thing by me, what's David's decision? It's a more and more radical righteousness, isn't it? The radical, the radical righteous act of David here is to show mercy to Saul. To show mercy to Saul over and over and over again. And the result of that is that when David is king, he's king without blood in his hands, Right? His king established it in the fact that God has kept his promise. That's how he becomes king. What are some other examples? Um, doing right thing on our terms might be like, hey, I'm going to be generous. And so, yeah, I'm going to give a couple dollars to some people, right, that I know. I'm going to help some people out. But when we're righteous based not on our righteousness but on God's righteousness, you're not just generous. You're sacrificially generous. You, you see the difference? There's a lot of people who are generous but as Christians, we can be sacrificially generous. Why? Because the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, what does, God, what does, what does righteousness look like in Jesus? It's not just, oh, here, let me help you out. I'm going to help you out even if it costs me. I'm willing to be sacrificially generous. Do you realize a community that's sacrificially generous cannot be stopped? You can't stop them because they'll never, you can't outgive them, right? You can't, you can't go beyond what they're willing to give to help others around them, to help those in their community. You're not just generous, you're sacrificial generous. That's a radical righteousness. That's a righteousness of God in Jesus. When we think, what's the right thing for me to do? Well, it's, I know God will notice me and reward me based on the fact that I am in him. And I think of what's right and what's righteous based on him, based on being in Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, okay, what's the... What's the right thing for me to do when it comes to being kind and gracious to people? Well, to my friends, to those around me, I'm going to be kind and gracious, right? That's one way of thinking about it. 
But when we're thinking, what's the right thing for me to do, to do based on God and Jesus, it's I'm going to be kind and gracious even to my enemies, even to those who others would cancel or dismiss or overlook. I will be kind and gracious even to them. You realize that's a radical righteousness. And it's a radical righteousness that we only see really in Jesus, isn't it? Jesus calls us to be righteous not just to the people who are friends with us, <laughs> or to be kind and gracious just to the people who are friends with us. Be kind and gracious to people who, who, who dismiss us and overlook us. To be kind and gracious to people others would just sort of move around. And the result of that is that more people are reached with the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus. When you're righteous based on God, when your righteousness, when you think of what's the right thing for me to do, and I think first of God and his righteousness and who he is, and I'm basing how I think of myself and the right things I do in Jesus, it means you will speak up for things that are wrong and unjust, even when it's uncomfortable, even when the pressure is to stay silent and to ignore it. You will confess when, the t- when you do wrong things. You'll, you'll actually be willing to apologize and to fix relationships that you have, and you'll do it over and over and over again when others will give up the first time. That's a radical righteousness. It's a Jesus righteousness. You'll be gracious when others say the right thing to do is punish. You will speak and act in love when others will say the right thing to do is to ignore or hate or compromise. What's the right thing to do? What makes me righteous? There's a lot of ways to approach that question. A lot of ways to sort of think about that that kind of reality. And, And what I want to say this morning is there is only one way that makes God and his kingdom more present in this world. There's only one way that has eternal value and eternal significance. There's only one way that elevates us to the level of God and his heavenly kingdom and his heavenly glory. And it's the way of Jesus. What does it mean for me to be righteous? What does it mean for me to do the right thing? I want to answer that question. I want us to think of that question, always thinking, what does God want of me? What he wants for me is to know him and believe in him in Jesus, and then he gives me his righteousness And that opens up everything, doesn't it? It opens everything for how we treat one another, how we think about things, how we approach things. It's at that place that righteous things really do happen. The kind of righteous things that are of God's kingdom, isn't it? The kind of righteous things that are of his son. The kind of righteous things that are the basis of the new heavens and new earth is where we're going. So may God allow us to be righteous. Again, righteous not on our terms, but on his terms. On the terms of Jesus. Amen.